Hi and welcome to the podcast. I'm Sonia Thomas. I'm Sarah Jordan. And I'm Gavin Cooper. Welcome to Series 3, Episode 8. So today's episode is with Chris Lang. Chris Lang is a consultant nephrologist at UCLH and the Royal Free and is a Divisional Clinical Director of Emergency Services at UCLH. He founded the London AKI Network and was a Guideline Development Group member for NICE AKI. He also clinically led the DeepMind Health Royal Free Streams AKI implementation and has an interest in digital health and data science. So when we sat down with Chris, we talked about how AKI can be spot in the emergency department and on the wards and kind of how data science is helping make that easier for clinicians. We talked about how it can be tricky to sort of unpick whether a patient has AKI or is it potentially dehydration or a chronic kidney disease. We talk about what's useful in creatinine, sodium and urea. We talk a little bit about stock criteria as well and what the indications are for renal replacement. Also what to do with tumor syndrome. We talked about the implications of kidney damage for myeloma patients, how to correct AKI and also finally why we have two kidneys. When you have patients coming into A&E, what is the kind of the earliest point at which you can diagnose there's an issue with someone's kidneys? So acute kidney injury is a loss of kidney function and the most widely deployed blood test to assess that is, is serum creatinine and that's usually the first point of diagnosis for a, an acutely admitted patient. To diagnose acute kidney injury, you ideally need a, a one-week baseline we use with a detection algorithm that's that's in the lab system an annualized baseline and then what you're looking for is a a jump off that baseline that's significant. So a 1.5 rise from baseline within a week or from an annualized baseline or also um, more than 26 uh, absolute points off the baseline it would be considered AKI, and then we stage further according to severity. We'd also stage uh, according to urine volumes, but you need a sustained oliguria for six hours. And, and oliguria is defined as less than 0.5 mils per kilogram per hour for six hours straight. So it's not an average. We would say, you know, for a 100 kilogram person, less than 50 mils an hour for every hour for six hours is also AKI, but overwhelmingly this is diagnosed on on a blood test. In terms of how quickly that's available, we now do have point of care serum creatinine in the ED, and obviously we're turning around blood tests, you know, reasonably quickly, usually within one to two hours. You may notice the result if there are baseline values or it's abnormal, the detection algorithm will fire and one will normally see an, an AKI uh, notification in EPIC suggesting that there might be a problem, uh, at which point you, you, you know, you're treating a, a, a likely AKI. If you see a blood test for the first time and you have no patient history, can you tell the difference between someone who's just dehydrated but their kidneys are healthy and AKI? Is it, so is the, it possible uh, to be one but not the other? So in terms of an abnormal blood test, if you don't have any baseline values and the serum creatinine is up, we would say assume it's AKI until proven otherwise. We get historical results and we follow the trend. can do a kidney ultrasound scan. If the kidneys are small and scarred, it suggests it's a more chronic problem. Uh, so if there's no baseline, we'd say assume it's AKI until proven otherwise, but it might be a new presentation of chronic kidney disease. The creatinine is chronically abnormal rather than acutely high. I think if the creatinine is up, it's AKI. Dehydration is a cause of AKI. They're not exclusive. 
Uh, so if the creatinine's up, it's AKI, and if the patient then seems dehydrated, you know, you have a potential driver for the AKI, you can rehydrate them and restore their circulation. Obviously, there are patients who present who appear dehydrated that are not in AKI, in which case you're relying on a, a clinical assessment. In terms of other blood tests, urea can be high disproportionately in dehydration. It's not that reliable. It depends a little bit on what uh, the patient's been eating, but that's something that you, you might see an isolated high urea or uh, an isolated high sodium in someone who's just got more pure dehydration, but their kidneys have not actually started to fail. And what are some of the causes of this to happen, or most commonly? AKI, most commonly caused by infection, and particularly infection in patients with a lot of comorbidities. And of those patients with infection, a proportion of them will have more overt sepsis. But there's a lot of AKI we see in patients who aren't firing other sepsis triggers. They've just got infection. CRP's up, they're unwell, they've got a fever. So there's, I'd say, around 80% plus infection. You know, probably a proportion of that, you know, probably around 10% are overtly septic. The next most common cause is a circulatory disturbance. So that would be hypovolemia, diarrhea, and other forms of dehydration, hemorrhage, etc. We then have circulatory disturbances that aren't driven by hypovolemia like heart and liver failure. So sepsis and hypovolemia, stroke hypoperfusion of the kidneys, is right up there as number one altogether. That's about 90% of the problem. So look for infection, look for signs of hypovolemia, look for signs of heart or liver failure. Very commonly in your patients, we see a CRP burst that is then followed about two days later by a, a creatinine rise. So I'd always recommend having a look at what the CRP has done. We call that the STOP criteria. We S for sepsis and hyperperfusion. We then have toxicity, which is drugs. Again, a lot in your patients. Platinum, cisplatin, iphosphamide, methotrexate. There's quite a few. There's all the non-chemotherapy type drugs that we use uh, as well. So non-steroidals, there's radiological contrast, there's still a, a slight risk factor, probably overstated venous CT contrast. We then got obstruction of the kidneys, always something to consider in patients with malignancy. Do they have enlarged retroperitoneal lymph nodes that are blocking off the kidney tract? And then we've got primary renal disease. So if someone's, you know, uh, having an autoimmune renal disorder, if they're having a, a, an allergic reaction, to a drug, for example, tubular interstitial nephritis or, you know, a, an autoimmune renal disease precipitated by a drug or spontaneously, what we call glomerular nephritis. So we've got sepsis and hyperperfusion, toxicity, obstruction and primary renal disease in descending order of, of how common they are. Traditionally, that was pre-renal, renal being primary renal disease and post-renal being uh, obstruction the stop criteria are quite useful because it puts sepsis up at the top, which will obviously cause mortality very quickly if it's unrecognised. So I saw that there was the AKI network with the algorithms and the stop. Is that something that's used in hospitals all over London as a kind of algorithm to so identify the, things? So, yeah, I mean, there's two things. There's a laboratory algorithm, which is a national implementation, which produces this notification in the pathology system saying possible AKI. And then we have our sort of algorithmic treatment protocols, which are the clinical guideline. And yeah, that's, that's something that's used widely in London. So then the other teams within the specialties in the hospital can then be guided from that and then refer to you when needed. Exactly.
So we do see a lot of referrals. I think in general, severe EKI, EKI three, or where the EKI is undiagnosed, um, and we need we need a cause or EKI that's not getting better, we would expect to be referred. Obviously, there are a proportion of patients that need transfer for renal biopsy, diagnostics, kidney dialysis, and there are some patients who have complications of EKI where they really need urgent treatment in the ITU to stabilize them because they develop complications such as fluid overload or a high potassium or acidosis or they're drowsy from a very high urea. And at what point would someone need filtration? The indication for renal support is whether uh, complications have been manifested. So if someone's fluid overloaded, if they're breathless, if they've got pulmonary edema, if, if we're un- unable to, 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 you know, if they've got progressively worsening edema, if they've got drowsiness from uremia, if they've got um, persistent hyperkalemia or acidosis, very high phosphate, they're all indications for renal support. And that's particularly in patients where it's not likely their kidneys are going to suddenly get better. There's no point really delaying access to that renal support treatment. But those treatments, um, they are replacing kidney function. They aren't actually healing up the kidneys in any way. They're just there to manage the complications until we've either treated the kidneys to get them better or they've recovered from what other insult, they've spontaneously recovered from what the insult was in the first place. At what point do you worry about phosphate levels? It can crystallise, can't it, in the kidneys? Yes, so in the context of tumour lysis syndrome, you know, in any high phosphate in tumour lysis syndrome, we'd be recommending you know, vigorous hydration at least. A phosphate of more than four, uh, we would view as an indication for urgent dialysis in tumour lysis syndrome. So that's an important point. Occasionally, you have a scenario where the kidney function may be down but the load we've delivered to the kidneys to, to, to manage is much, much higher. Mm. So you've got a decline in function and an increase in demand on getting rid of, of waste products. And in the case of tumor lysis, it's a massive release of phosphate. If we don't deal with that, particularly in those very high cases of four and above, you'll get calcium phosphate crystallization in tissues, including the kidney, which can be permanently harmful. So that would be an indication for transfer to the ITU here. I think that's what we see quite a lot. When patients are first diagnosed and waiting to start treatment, they might have kidney impairment anyway, and then we go and give them steroids and everything else. It's quite tricky to manage. Yep, obviously, you know, we use allopurinol, we use rasburicase for the phosphate. We try to keep the patient hydrated. Occasionally, saline plus fruzamide, unusually, we don't normally give both at the same time, and, but in that scenario where we're trying to just drive a high urine volume, we occasionally do that, and then it's really just dialysis if it's required. And, you know, I think if someone's had life-saving chemotherapeutic treatment, we wouldn't want to withhold that unnecessarily. Obviously, there's a decision to be made about the risk-benefits of the treatment, but very often it's the appropriate thing to, to do to go ahead and then manage the, the renal complications as they arise because they will get better. I haven't really seen it that much. I think we do prevent it, I guess, quite well, would you say? <laughs> the tumor lysis syndrome within yes. our patients, yeah. The nurse on the ward, they know if your creatinine's raised, there's an issue with the kidneys, and then fluid. You know, it goes hand in hand, give fluid. What, what else would, would you do? So any kind of AKI. So I think there's the supportive care, and then there's treating the underlying cause. So the supportive care, we'd say, you know, you've got a patient at risk, they're at much higher risk of uh, an inpatient mortality. They're at risk of, of deterioration, they're at risk of 
uh, getting kidney scarring, chronic kidney disease. So they, they need to have uh, monitoring. They should have a, a fluid chart, regular observations, and you know at least daily bloods while they're in that acute phase of AKI, keeping an eye on the calcium phosphate, bicarb, and potassium. We should review their drug chart. There's two things to do in, in there is there's one to remove drugs that might be toxic to the kidneys that may have even caused the AKI. And the second thing is if the kidney function's down, you may need dose adjustment. We then have fluid optimization, and you know, in general, we want to make the patient uvolemic. There's no advantage to overloading the patient, and this is something which is often overdone because people feel they need to do something. Being fluid overloaded is not beneficial to your kidneys. It's probably harmful to kidney function, and it's 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 certainly not good for the other bits of the body. So we'd recommend, you know, judicious fluid loading, preferably boluses of 250 mils, balanced crystalloid until the patient's uvolemic, and then they need a maintenance regime which keeps up with their losses, which are the sensible losses in urine or diarrhea or whatever, drains, and, um, you know, about 500 mils a day to cover breathing, etc. So there's a resuscitation phase and then a maintenance phase of fluids, there's managing the other complications that might arise from AKI if they are actually at the point of being overloaded or floating with frusamide. Medical management of hyperkalemia with insulin, dextrose, perhaps bicarb, and escalating to dialysis if necessary. Prompt treatment of any infection. AKI patients are at risk of infection as well as infection being a cause of AKI. And then monitoring adequately to follow up because a lot of patients won't recover and will need to be seen in clinic and to, to, to see where their kidneys end up. That's the sort of supportive care. You then have the, treating the underlying cause. So if it's, we've talked about treating infection, we've talked about eliminating nephrotoxins. If the kidneys are obstructed, they need to be unobstructed. That might be a catheter. If it's bladder obstruction, it might be stents or nephrostomies if it's obstruction further up. If it's obstruction caused by lymphoma, we treat the lymphoma once the stents are in. We then have renal diseases, some of which, you know, uh, steroid treatment or uh, cytotoxics. We have plasma exchange in HUS patients and so on and so forth. So I think once we've recognised AKI, there's supportive care and there's care that's targeted at, at treating the underlying cause of the AKI. With so metabolic acidosis and you expect to see bicarbonate drop. We've seen some patients who have kind of their, their sepsis persists, they're reasonably stable, maybe you just say they're sort of febrotinogenic at that point, but they've developed some kidney impairment and the bicarb stays low. What's the kind of, what's happening there? Yeah, so I think you may get this acute lactic acidosis which reverses when the sepsis is under control. If you have renal, significant renal impairment, you will have a renal acidosis, and that's really uh, just the inability of the kidney to get rid of acid or secrete protons. In that instance, if it's not terribly severe and there aren't other complications that need dialysis, you know, renal support in the ITU or kidney dialysis in the kidney unit, we would generally give bicarbonate. And in a patient who's reasonably well, we'd often start them on oral bicarbonate, 500 milligrams TDS, uh, occasionally, if they're hypovolemic and they need fluid anyway, or it's a bit more severe, they've got high potassium associated with the acidosis, we would give IV bicarbonate. And the ward, we normally give 1.26%, 125 mils per hour for eight hours, something like that. You know, obviously, if they're overloaded, it's a sodium load that you wouldn't wish to give, and they may need dialysis in that situation. 
So we view that as part of supportive care, support the, the acidosis, and when the kidneys are get better, the dependence on that supportive care should go away. We've spoken a little about lymphoma patients and you mentioned HUS. Myeloma patients, I would imagine you were contacted quite a lot by our teams yeah. and they often have an impaired renal function to start with a high creatinine. So for a nurse monitoring someone that we know has got problems with their kidneys, what advice could we have for those nurses? So myeloma, we see a lot of AKI in myeloma. It's overwhelmingly something called cast nephropathy, which is the toxicity of, of light chains in the urine, uh, which are dissociated paraproteins. And uh, that can actually be a presenting feature of, of myeloma. And we end up diagnosing it, then referring it to hematology, because we've diagnosed it on kidney biopsy. So uh, not uncommon. There are other things in myeloma that cause AKI. You can have a high calcium in myeloma. You can have amyloid in myeloma. That's normally patients get very heavy proteinuria and they get nephrotic. In terms of what you do in any myeloma patient with renal impairment, what I'm saying to the hematologists is treat the myeloma as best you can because that's their main risk factor for getting worse kidneys as we lose control of their urinary light chains. So it's best treatment for myeloma and then other generic preventive measures, avoiding dehydration, avoiding nephrotoxicity. If infection develops, treating it promptly, uh, escalating for management of complications, etc., as we've discussed. Uh, I've had it explained to me that kind of urea and creatinine rising kind of gives an indication of the kidney's health like 24 hours before. It's better to appropriately monitor their urine output than purely rely on sort of blood result changes to kind of figure out when there's a problem? So there, there is a lag. So in patients who are at sort of very high risk of, of AKI, you know, urine your, your volume monitoring can be helpful. It's most helpful if it's done intensively with early urine volumes, and, and that's why it's being done in critical care and why it's being done in post-operative patients. So that's really just looking for AKI from oliguria as per the criteria I've, uh, I've suggested earlier. So certainly there is a lag on blood tests and if you have a very high risk patient, uh, urine volume monitoring may be helpful. It's not something we would routinely do or take lightly. We wouldn't normally do early urine volume monitoring on someone who's about to chemotherapy or some other potential. You know, I think we would uh, certainly keep an eye on their uh, non-catheterized urine volumes and do their blood tests. So I think uh, it's a reasonably invasive thing to do early urine volume uh, monitoring, but we certainly do it in very high-risk patients, particularly perioperative patients. Are there any renal wards at UCLH, or are they referred on to other centres? So afraid not. So we have an ITU which provides 24-7 kidney support. Uh, we have a nephrology service, which is sort of me, and uh, occasionally, <laughs> some, occasionally a couple of a couple of excellent colleagues who also come down from the Royal Free. There isn't a team. It's a consultant-delivered service, and there's an advisory service which is phoning the Royal Free. The majority of our patients transfer to the Royal Free for care, but it may be your team are treating somebody who's quite far out of area, in which case we wouldn't be able to accept that patient necessarily, and uh, we, we would ask, we would help facilitate a transfer to their local renal unit if that was what was required. 
overwhelmingly patients are kept in UCLH and they're managed in the ITU with dialysis or if there's other intensive support that's required with monitoring, etc. Your, your teams are always very keen to keep a hold of patients for very good yeah. reasons, so they, we tend to try and make it work here. And, and you know, the ITO uh, are always very keen to help with these patients, uh, as are the PERP team. But we're around, you know, usually certainly three or four days a week, and always, I'm always happy to take calls. And, uh, you know, people are usually quite happy to provide me with calls. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so, yeah. And there's a 24-hour 7-on-call service from the, the, the Royal Free. What was the reason for, for urea not being as helpful as creatinine? Creatinine is what AKI is defined by other okay. than urine volume. It is a more reliable marker. Urea can go up in hypovolemia or dehydration even when the, the kidneys are working fine. It's also very influenced by dietary intake of protein. It's also influenced by liver function, etc. So it's not, a, although it tends to go up in concert with creatinine, we don't use it to define AKI. And um, it's not something I look at that much, to be honest. Creatinine's by far the more important marker of kidney function. It's not perfect. Uh, as you've said, it, it, you know, it's released from muscle. It takes a while to accumulate. You, you may not see a creatinine, particularly when one is doing a, a blood test every 24 hours or so, you, you may not see a creatinine rise until one or two days after the kidney insult itself. It's a functional marker, creatinine. It's telling you the kidney's ability to wee creatinine to function has gone down. It doesn't tell you anything about the cause of the AKI, and it's a little delayed. It's just the best widely available test that we have. Is the sort of estimated creatinine clearance on EPIC, do, do you find that useful? No, uh, no. so I think, no. Um, yeah, we probably need to move towards EGFR. So basically it comes from research which validated an estimate of creatinine, of kidney function GFR based on creatinine values and age, etc. It's not perfect. It's most accurate uh, when the patient has actually got, got less kidney function. It lags the same way creatinine does. And I think the key thing uh, for people to remember is while the creatinine is rising, it isn't a reliable estimate, either the estimated creatinine clearance or the EGFR. Until the creatinine is back in steady state, it doesn't tell you what the actual GFR is. Um, so someone can have no urine volume and have a GFR of zero, no kidney function, but their creatinine may be rising, and it's only when it reaches steady state that you uh, get an accurate EGFR. So don't use it as a mark. You know, if you're dosing drugs, for example, mm. don't use the EGFR if the creatinine is rising. Uh, I mean, sometimes we do isotopic GFR uh, when a patient's got a stable creatinine and we want to know precisely what their GFR is. Well, you know, that's, that would be considered a gold standard test would be an adjusted isotopic GFR, which sometimes your teams do. But again, not helpful uh, unless you're in steady state. Can I just ask something really basic? So where does the creatinine come from? Uh, so it, it and what is it? <laughs> so it's a, it's, a, it's a good question. So it's an enzyme and it comes from muscle. And obviously it tends to be produced in a reasonably constant way because your muscle mass doesn't change very quickly. So it's released into the blood, it stays in the blood, it's filtered by the kidneys, 
the filter rate of creatinine is determined by how concentrated the creatinine is in the blood. You establish a baseline depending on what your kidney function is and your muscle mass, and you will tend to stay there until your kidney function changes or your muscle mass changes. It tends to be the former rather than the latter. But clearly, if you're a patient, if you had a, an amputation or their, their creatinine may change because uh, they've lost, lost yeah. muscle mass, you may see patients who are, um, you know, they've lost a lot of muscle through illness in hospital. Because they're producing less creatinine, it may look like their kidney function's okay, but they've actually lost quite a bit of kidney function because their muscle mass has gone down and it's hiding the fact that the kidneys have, have taken a bit of a hit as well. So you do see changes in musculature that result in changes in serum creatinine, but it usually means something's happened to kidney function, particularly if it's moving quickly. Clearly, if you've got a high baseline value, it means your baseline kidney function is probably not good. But in AKI, it's really about it departing from the baseline in a significant way, which is where the criteria come in. Because what if you sorry, what if you went to the gym like loads and steroids and you got a load of muscle? What if your kidneys the same size? Uh, so 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 people who are really muscly do have higher creatinine baseline value. What does it mean when you have a really low creatinine? We've seen bloods where it's been unusually low, and then I said, is yeah. that a problem? And no one's ever really been able to explain it to me. So usually a really low creatinine means you've got someone who's got a really low muscle mass, and that so is like malnourished and yeah, been been very ill. And that it will dilute if someone's been acutely diluted, as all the other blood tests. It usually does not mean someone's got sort of superhuman kidney function. It usually means that they've yeah. lost, uh, <laughs> they've lost, they've lost muscle mass. So, right. what else would you look at then to kind of corroborate that in the bloods? If there's a dilutional problem, you'd look at the sodium, the the hemo, you know, the hematocrit, the hemoglobin. All the blood values will potentially be trending towards low normal or low in a diluted state, but particularly you know low urea, low hematocrit, low sodium. In terms of is this just low muscle mass, have a look at the patient. Children have low baseline serum creatinines because they tend to be less muscular. We see low baseline volumes in, in pregnant women because they tend to be a bit diluted. They've expanded their circulation during pregnancy. In general, it's people who are cachectic. In sepsis, what is regulating the, the urine output? So sepsis is certainly not as straightforward. So septic AKI, there are patients who are shocked um, and are uh, hypoperfusing. But, you know, there's a great many patients where that's not the case. And there are other factors in place. So there's immune mediators of renal injury and sepsis. There's microcirculatory problems with microthrombi, etc. So it's a complex picture, which we do understand a little bit more about, but it's, it's certainly a lot more complicated than low blood pressure. And we can see that because you see patients who've got infection without any physiological abnormalities, my OBS are fine, mm. and their kidneys take a hit. Mm. Oh, we did have one flipping question. Oh, yeah, question. Why, why do we have two? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so it's a good question. So, 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 the, so the, the, the kidneys, why do we have two? Well, they're pretty important. And um, I guess we, get, you know, we don't have two brains. I, I think this sort of, uh, you know, why do we have two? Very good question. It's, it's helpful if you, lose, if you lose one to have a spare. Yeah, um, 100%. And um, there's quite a reserve of kidney function. So 
although we are, we are trying to intervene in AKI or even chronic kidney disease, stop kidney function getting worse as, as soon as we see it getting worse. You tend not to run into complications until your kidney function is really bad. So, you know, a dialysis patient, they're generally down at about 10% of normal kidney function to have justified starting dialysis. So I think we've been given a big reserve of kidney function for a reason, because, you know, when your kidneys stop, you, you can't survive for terribly long. Uh, why have we got two? Well, I guess, you know, we're, you know, in evolutionary terms, it was it was advantageous to have a, a one that's anatomically separate from, from the other in case... Uh, one of them blocks off or gets injured or so on and so forth. Because the other one will compensate for, for the Quite. reduced function of the other. You can live on one. And indeed, if you just get an isolated injury to one kidney or you're born with one kidney or you donate a kidney, which you know we're always encouraging people to do, uh, your other kidney will tend to, to take up the slack and hypertrophy. You tend not to go to normal or baseline kidney function but it definitely starts doing more than it used to.